I think food is another practice that allows you to take community and ingest it and like bring the outside in. And that carrot cake was like, for me, it was the cake, but it was also the love and I was eating love. Welcome to the Beside Project, an exploration of where the end of life and Judaism intersect. My name is Sarit, and I'm out to uncover what wisdom and rituals Judaism provides for the dying, for the people caring for the dying, and for what comes next. I am Marissa Nathan Gerson, she, her, and I live in New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm a professor of communication at Tulane University uh, with a focus on writing about the body and writing about alternative journalism and looking at resistance media in the country and around the world. And I am the author of a forthcoming book called Forget Prayers, Bring Cake, A Single Woman's Guide to Grieving. And it's published with Mandala Publishing, which is a small press and subsidiary of Simon & Schuster. And I am super excited. Marissa and I connected for the podcast over the summer, before her book came out. As I record this, I'm halfway through Forget Prayers, Bring Cake, and all I can say is go read it. It's both a beautiful memoir and a thoughtful roadmap. We talked for an hour and could have easily talked for two. There's a lot in today's episode, and I wanted to give you the heads up that there are some swear words in the recording. Marissa jumps right into it and doesn't waste time. While getting to the heart of it all, both Marissa, the podcast guest, and Marissa, the author, convey caring and work to make sure all the pieces are turned over, explained, and talked through. We started about the book and where the title came from. I moved to New Orleans in September of 2019, and a week later, my dad was having health issues that were really strange, like falling over out of the blue, not being able to walk straight. We went to the hospital and I sort of simultaneously went through moving to a new city with like three acquaintances and a new home. And, you know, I was taking my, the biggest risk of my life. Simultaneously, my dad was literally dying and I didn't even know he was dying, but he died two months later. So when I was home in DC, I started to notice that my, that's where my parents are from, that my sister and brother we're just getting really different care and expressing themselves very differently than I was. Um, for example, when I found out my dad was sick, I called like 15 friends, like closest friends. And they thought that was strange. Like I was spreading the word or whatever. I mean, I had permission from my family, but I realized that they had constant witness because they had a partner. So their pain was sort of seen and then made real. And I was needing to make it real by talking to more people because I didn't have any friends yet where I lived. And so no one was seeing me. And so I started to really think about, oh, what does it mean to be single and to be grieving versus to be in a couple and grieving? And, you know, there's so many couples where you feel like you're single. I know a lot of people have since told me that in their marriage, they feel as alone as a single person, which I totally believe. This was not about everyone else's story. This is a memoir about my experience. And so I was home and One day I got really jealous. A woman who this family friend of ours was living in Saudi Arabia and doing this Instagram feed of all of her baked goods, just baked good after baked good after baked good. And I was 
so excited when she came back to the US, I wanted her to make us cake. And the title of the book came from when my father and sister got cakes. My, my dad was dying. It was my sister's birthday. So this woman came over with cake for them. And I'd been asking for like a year. I just want a carrot cake. And it, I didn't get a cake. And all these people that day kept be, kept saying things like, oh, yeah, I'm praying for you. Like, I'm praying for your father. And I was like, I don't care about your prayers. I just want a cake. And so uh, that's where the title came from. And that's also when I, I just started. I had been working as a ghostwriter for other people's book proposals. I just sat down and made a book proposal that day and just tucked it away and forgot about it. And then it became a book like a year later when I sold it. I love the title of this book. It's action oriented and towards possibly my favorite action, eating delicious food. A small parallel in my daily life and maybe in yours too, is that there's plenty of times that I don't want to talk about it, whatever it is. And the best thing my partner or friend can do is to prepare food for me and then sit next to me while I eat it all up. For many of life's most difficult moments, especially including the death of a loved one, there's rarely anything we can say that will compare to just showing up and nourishing those we love with our presence and with food. Next, we talked about the timeline of the book and when Marissa started writing. I wrote a proposal. I wrote another one too called, I had a funny one that was like, or it was called like eat your feelings. It was something about like what's in, what's in your fat um, in a good way. Like what, what have you, I wanted to write like a, like sort of an homage to each pound I'd gained and where they came from and why, but so I was, I was playing around with ideas Um, But I was in my parents' house in D.C. for like extended periods of time and thinking about, you know, I was in this transition in life. Now I teach at Tulane. When I got to New Orleans, I was ghostwriting and really didn't know what was going to happen next at all. This is, you know, this is what I intended. You know, I hope to move here and teach and to write and just nothing about how it unfolded was what I expected yeah, I, st- I just started observing. There was something comical to me. Like there was a day, I remember this day at the hospital where like someone I really didn't like showed up to visit my father. Really just to, did not want to see her, did not want to, there, there are actually not that many people that could show up to like love my family that I don't want to see. But she's someone who was just not honoring boundaries. And I was dressed up to the nines because it was a religious holiday. So I was wearing this like, I, I was so formal. And I just had this, you know, you have tantrums when you're grieving that are just so annoying. Like you feel like a child because there's so much you can't handle. I mean, I'm sure there's somebody who's so graceful and perfect when they grieve, but it's not me. And I just was in the hospital. I just remember it wasn't even drama. I just walked out of the room, walked downstairs, didn't have a wallet or a purse, was just wearing this white fancy dress and it was pouring rain outside. And I ordered an Uber and I I remember like I just felt like such a movie scene, like Sex in the City almost in this formal outfit, like raining outside the hospital, and like jump in a car. And for me, it was go to a Rosh Hashanah meal. But there was just a lot that just seemed funny about it. Just everything just seemed funny, even though I was suffering so much. Everything was. And I think I wanted to write so, the book is sort of funny ish. There's parts that are very funny around dating. And um, like there's a chapter on dating while grieving. But I, I wanted something that, that gave 
credence to the reality of grief, which is that you're, you're real. When you're grieving, people are like, oh my gosh, this just sucks. But you're also, life just gets like sliced open. And it's, it's like the most, it's so, you're just alive in this way that sucks. And also there's just, at least in my family, well, there was a lot of laughter. You know, the night before my father died, there was like dancing in his room. Like there was just to balance the shit, you have to do all these other great things. And so that the process of writing the book definitely started while my dad was dying. But I didn't know that. I just remember being home in their house and feeling unmoored and needing to have some sense of agency. So I was writing things down. Six months after he died, I got the contract and I was paranoid. I was like ready to write. And I was very frustrated because I, it takes a long time to go through legal proceedings to do, you know, to negotiate a contract for a book. And I just thought it would be like a couple of days. And I had put this time before teaching aside to just like slam out work. And I'm superstitious though. So I refused to work until I signed the contract. I didn't start writing the book until the end of September. I mean, now that we're talking, I realized I had been writing it in my head. Yeah. So I started writing in September, but I really just had October, November, December, January when I wrote the book. That process was very different than imagining it. That was, it was hard. It was a very hard process to write this book. Being that Marissa is an active creator of her own Judaism and because of her family's engagements with Jewish practices, I was curious to learn how and if Judaism was present during the time her father became sick. That time I went home for Rosh Hashanah. We were supposed to do Rosh Hashanah in the hospital, all of us, and I was just sick of everybody. And I really wanted to be with my friends. My best friend's family was gathering, and that just felt so much more nourishing to me to not be with death and sadness. I mean, at that point, we didn't know he was going to die. It was just really creepy. It was almost like dementia symptoms-ish, but my father was this like, brilliant on international lawyer who also liked writing poetry and was like, could rap on call and he could recite Talmud. And it was very odd to have him just be like this impish guy in the hospital. He was a giant too. He was like six foot four, really weird. And I remember just having this like sudden realization. It took me a minute. I was at my friend's house with everyone like eating Kugel and like all these beautiful things. And just I was like, oh my God, I have to go to the hospital. What am I doing? I was supposed to be with my feet. I just like, it It was like some part of me was trying to split between what do I need? What nourishes me? And what does my family need? And I suddenly realized that they coincided in this moment that I needed to get back to the hospital. So I got an Uber back to the hospital all this time. It's funny. I was like, I had no wallet. I just had my phone and this like white dress and I got to the hospital and it was very sweet scene. It was my dad are like two family best friend couples and my mom and my brother in a circle around my father with my, well, my dad in his hospital bed and we were all together and it was just sweet. Like we had, we brought Rosh Hashanah, like my mom's, my mom's a food writer and just does Jewish food time, like to the nines. And it's really interesting, like Moroccan Jewish food and Indian Jewish food and like just a real fusion of worldly delicious Jewish food and like homemade bread and, we invite. We found out that one of the nurses at the hospital was also Jewish and was not allowed to get the night off. And so we brought her in and we like initiated her in. It was just a really sweet time. And we did a full Rosh Hashanah with my dad in the middle. And we arranged like pomegranates and oranges on his hospital table. And so there was an element of being able to do Jewish practice with him. And also, you know, we, we were very close with Rabbi Aaron Alexander, who was like a steady force. 
But in that time of his, like, my father's decline, I can't recall how Jewish practice was integrated for me. I'm trying to remember the different people that I talked to, but I called a few sort of Jewish priestess, not not like Kohenet, but more like Aleph elderly women who I called for help to, uh, to just ask about death. And I actually did... Rabbi Jill Hammer, uh, who founded Kohenet, I did call her and she was a huge help right after he died. Um, Cause I was just really, the, the few days after his death, I had just all kinds of crazy things happen and I didn't really know how to land and she was really useful. So I got a lot of training from a few different women before he died so that I knew the things to talk to him about. Cause I knew he was going to die. So I would like lie in his bed and do repentance practices with him and ask him like, do you, is there anything you need to let go of? And someone told me to like, let him know. Sometimes I'm like scared to say this because I don't want anyone to blame me for his death, but to, to let him know that it's okay to die, um, that it's not a problem. And then I ended up being sort of ushering him through the last, I was his last person to talk to before he died. And I, we talked through like not to be afraid and said prayers, but then the rest of my book, like now you can see my memories are like woven between reality and like what I transcribed in the book. But the moment my dad died forward, Jewish time practices became like the most relevant. Hearing about some of the practices that Marissa was able to bring to her father was beautiful. And a reminder that we can always be creating meaningful ritual, whether faith-based or otherwise. And I want to highlight that because historically, Judaism doesn't offer much in the way of ritual before a person dies, even when we know that death is imminent. Leading with life is the common approach, which can be unsatisfying if we know that a return to health isn't a possibility. Next, Marissa shared about her experience after her father's death and the structures and practices that Judaism offers and where she needed to innovate to meet her needs in a difficult time. Rabbi Jill Hammer is the one I called when there was just a lot of like unbelievable conflict um, around my father's actual death. There was just like a lot of, like, I think we were all in so much pain. The house, it's very common. The house sort of went up in emotional flames and I wasn't sure how to sort of what to do. And she reminded me of like an Enonet, I think it's Nonenet, Enonet, and the state of sort of suspension between the death and the burial and that I needed I really needed to hear that. It really helped me. And I, when I moved to New Orleans, n- much more now then than now, I was very active in a small Jewish community and then also met um, a few different rabbis locally. And so I had rabbis on the phone. Like a lot of the people that helped me through that stage were rabbis. And I would call like this Orthodox rabbi friend. I, you know, if Rabbi Jill Hammer said one thing, then I'd ask him. And every rabbi will tell you something different. But the common thread there was, when somebody dies, you are obligated to nothing. You don't need to feel shamed about anything. I mean, unless you killed someone, but if you scream, if you cry, if you're having a hard time, like all these things, she, I don't think I could fully take it in. I had a lot of just like really confusing emotions. And I think guilt and shame are one coping mechanism, actually. Like if I felt the guilt and the shame, I didn't have to feel that like excruciating pain that my dad was just dead and I'd witnessed him die. Yeah. So I learned from her and then, you know, we did, I'm so grateful for Judaism because it really gave us structure in a time where there isn't any. So we had um, like a formal Jewish funeral and then, you know, we didn't do everything according to the rules. Like we flew up to Massachusetts to bury him. We did Shiva there and then we did Shiva in DC 
and Shiva itself was like sweet as an idea, but also and my dad was like a big, a big wig in the legal world. And it was just like a hundred people a night and like these weird, like political remembrances of what he did and just like odd moments. Like my, we got this letter from, I don't know what country it was, but some very important dignitary wrote us this like formal letter and then sent someone to show up to the house with baklava. There was just like these moments. It was a fascinating time. Like my family friend in Israel flew to the U.S. for 24 hours just to comfort my mother and leave. Like he just had to be there. And I don't know what it was, but it was so touching. And he showed up the same day as like randomly like George Bush's nephew showed up and everything just made no sense. It just sort of wandered through. And I was just really grateful to have this station in my bedroom where I could retreat to. I write a lot about Judaism in the book and about sort of what the heck to do with Kaddish. You know, I didn't say, well, there was a pandemic and therefore there was no Kaddish in person. And that, you know, I had, there was a Kohenet bridged ritual I did online and my sister did an online Kaddish and I would join some synagogues, but it was terrible. And I, so I didn't write about that. Instead, I wrote about just what you do and you need to innovate because we do need to innovate. And a lot was about like, what do you do with these strict laws that make you feel like shit when you can't follow them? And then how, like, you know, that a lot of the book is about, okay, how do you do it yourself? Like, what if I want to do a Kaddish and I can't go to Kaddish? What if I, what are the ingredients in these rituals that are so nourishing that we could adapt in our own lives without having to follow suit? And what if I don't have 10 men I want to pray with? And what if I don't believe in the gender divide in Judaism? And what if I don't believe in gender? And what if I don't want to do Hebrew? What if I don't like God? Like, there's just so many ways to build and create prayer and ritual without having to follow the laws. But also I'm very like strict in my heart on Torah and, and everything Jewish has very ancient, very wise medicine in it. And it's a question of like, how do we apply it in the modern? And I believe that we can. And I had fun writing these parts of the book, like, okay, what is Kaddish doing? And why is it longer for someone whose parent died? And really thinking about that, I realized, oh, because this overhead is gone. When I go to my dad's grave now, I'm like, oh, your bones, like those bones are where I came from. That that fact is a fact, even if my emotions around it are like whatever at times. So I, I think that having power to do your own practice and to feel Jewish and to not have to follow the rules, especially when the rules can't be followed, you know, like the Kaddish I found in New Orleans, because they don't have a daily Kaddish here, was an Orthodox minion that forced me on one side alone. And I just did not, I did not like that. So the pandemic interrupted Marissa's experience of mourning with her community, and she talked about the importance and power of the people we surround ourselves with. Before the pandemic hit and I was grieving, it was awesome that I had a Jewish community here. So I did know a lot of lefty Jews and some, I had this one friend who was a male Orthodox rabbi who we would figure out how to include him without him breaking his laws. But having, we had Kaddish Minion at my house and it was awesome. It was like, in some ways I miss it now. 10 people would come and maybe more. And some of them were Jews and some of them weren't, but we had a common intention to sit and say the prayers and give me space to say Kaddish. And then we, they brought food and it was awesome. And it wasn't Shiva. And it was, what I'm realizing is what people need is this community gathering place, like this circle around them and this, like we really need witness, especially when someone dies. Like I think the most powerful thing, if anyone can stand it, is someone looking in your eyes and seeing you and not saying, you know, I had an, I feel bad saying this, but like somebody I know passed away yesterday and 
I was talking to a man on the phone who was so kind to let me know and he was doing his best. And I said, I need, I need to get off the phone now because I needed to just have my feelings. And he summarized for me what the feelings might be. He's like, well, we're all so angry. We're also, and I was just like, no, dude, I literally just told you I need to get off the phone and have my own feelings. I, I really believe that like what he could have done for me in that call would have been to be silent and to be present and to be witness. And so there's a, there's a whole part at the and towards the end of the book on how to build a ritual and like, what are the ingredients needed? And they're like, show up, have an opening to the ceremony, whatever it may be. The ceremony could literally be like, I know there's all these Jews that love fish. So it could be like, we're going to open the ceremony in silence and we're going to listen to a fish song and then we're going to eat cake. And, but we're going to close the ritual before the cake. And we're going to say like gratitude, whatever, you know, as it got closer into the pandemic, doing these rituals for me actually felt less and less good because the people that showed up were not the same people that showed up in the first wave of my grief. And the people that showed up in the second wave couldn't hold space. Like I had a very awkward, like my, at the yard side of my father, I held an outdoor, it was, that was like at the height of the pandemic. So outdoor um, cottage, like to close my yard site and girls showed up drunk with alcohol in their pocket. Like it was like a new group of people I knew from like the party scene. And I just assumed, like, I just assumed everybody knows how to be spiritual. Everybody knows. And when I say spiritual, I mean, everyone knows how to shut up and honor an experience. Everybody knows what it means to comfort another. And I realized that means different things to different people. You know, I remember one friend's brother passed away in high school and the funeral, we were, you know, it was like a cocktail party by the grave. And we had just like a tent and tons of alcohol and it was great. And then there was a dance party that night and it was, she thought I was judging her, but I wasn't judging. I just was raised with different rules. Like you don't eat by the grave. Alcohol is really not that involved for me at a Shiva. Uh, no dancing for a year, like all these different things or a month or a year, depending on who died. And so one of the things about ritual in the modern is learning not to judge and not to be angry when you're, because I think there was an anger. I was really angry when I couldn't say Kaddish because I knew my father would be so mad that I wasn't honoring the dead. Like I felt this like really horrible sense of, is his soul going to be okay? Am I a good Jew? Am I a good daughter? Like, am I a good descendant? Like my descendant is such a word because my dad was born during World War II and like survived the war. And I was like, oh, what kind of terrible daughter am I that I'm not saying Kaddish? I should be doing it every day. And when we were in DC, there was a great daily minion and we'd go every day. I re when I realized I just couldn't do it, I had to find another way. And it's also not that the ritual is also about finding another way to forgive yourself for not being a perfect spiritual, religious, whatever. Because the, the problem with religious rules is that when you break them, you feel like a sinner. What Marissa just pointed out is something that I myself have said and heard many people say, which is the role of being bad in your religion. For me, that's being a bad Jew. I'm a bad Jew because I don't keep the X, Y, Z rules. And even though we might say it with humor, there's often an underlying feeling of having failed. The grace to allow the space to explore and discover the meaning in our faiths is an important gift we should be giving ourselves. These rituals are mechanisms, and we can adjust the mechanism if they no longer serve us. Next, I was curious about the idea of writing as healing, and I asked Marissa if and how that was part of her experience. 
my thought about whether this is healing is twofold because in a lot of ways it was torture. Like, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Sometimes I think yes. And sometimes I think it was like self-abuse. I mean, it was really very hard to go through something traumatic and then relive that thing in order to process it for others. And there was definitely an element of self-healing and care. And, you know, part of me wonders if the healing process mostly also was in what I put out, took out of the book and like learning to create a cleaner narrative. And, you know, there's so many elements of death that are difficult. Learning that my dad is dead, probably the book helped. And I think that that was the hardest, for me, that was the hardest part of grief. And I'm starting to believe that that's just in a nutshell, what grief is, is the entire nervous system and mind reckoning with the truth that cannot be digested. Cause it's not even, it's not, and I don't mean that in like a cute poetic way, just a literal sense of your synapses have been trained for those who have absent parents. It's one thing, but whoever you've lost or whatever you've lost, I for 39 years or get at that point, 38 years, but I had a parent who was there even when I hated him, even when I wanted to kick him, even when we were fighting, even when he was just like a tyrant, I could reach out and this man was there for me. I could, if he was in Europe, he was there for me. If he was at work, he would like, let me know. He'd call me back. Like, yeah, I have a communicative person and not just there for me, but like loved me. And the idea he's gone, it wasn't even like, it's just literally unfathomable that your parent is gone. It's just not, nothing makes any sense about this constant. It's like, it's like taking the sky away. Like it doesn't make any sense. And I think for me that the book really helped because I had to repeatedly come back to that. I mean, I also had to witness my own process and I, the word healing is interesting just because it's like, I guess I'm coming back to repeatedly. What was I healing? Was I healing the fact that my dad died? Was I healing the fact that his death ruptured family relationships? Like a lot of my, like folding the book back together was like cleaning up who was broken, what we broke. Um, what's the narrative? What's where do I stand with me? Where do I stand with like just so many elements of unknowns and there's like a jumping rope to it. And then also I wrote this book through a pandemic and I I purposely don't mention the pandemic in the book, not even once, because it's about my dad's death and the pandemic made things worse. And in some ways I think the healing element was that I was in isolation in my house, living alone and writing this book gave me a companion in a lot of ways. Like I, if I had a panic attack, if I, you know, I had really bad PTSD after he died. And, you know, if I fell down because something reminded me of seeing him dead because I was in the room, then I could relive that experience, look at it, write about it. And there's like an act of compassion and acceptance of what I was going through. I just, when I hear other people speak and I don't know whose idea it is, I just imagine that, death is like this imaginary thing. You know, I don't know which part of the process I was always processing and like what I was healing. Healing from loss is not what I thought it would be at all. Healing from loss, there's nothing to heal from, like everybody dies, right? So I'm not healing from the fact of death. It was more that my nervous system needed help. It was more that seeing him die was unexpected and shocking, but being in the room at that moment was something I was able to withstand until the rest of me caught up. I, I was just spiritually unprepared. It doesn't mean that it was so horrible. Like it is horrible to lose a parent because the ache for that person is, I miss my dad all the damn time. And it's annoying. 
it's annoying and it's sad and it's frustrating and it's disorienting and it requires like a reorganization. But for me, the healing also is as simple as like, can you get through your day? Can you not burst? It wasn't even the crying as much as the faint. I fainted a lot. I just had a really bad reaction because I was hyper present in the room with him. And then I just feel like if I had been meditating and preparing and doing, like, I do think you could prepare for death by going spiritually much deeper into yourself. I I don't think I was ready for my nervous system to take it. Like I could handle it. I like my soul or whatever was very present for my father's passing, but then I passed out. Like I, a part of me cognitively in this basic mundane, uninteresting human body and human form was not able to handle it. And I think it's because I did not, like, I do believe we could do training for death. It doesn't mean you'll not have pain. It doesn't mean that like, it won't suck because it always will. But I do think there's spiritual training that we all could be doing to prepare for these ebbs and flows of life and for witnessing the profundity of your own damn parent dead in the room. We wrapped up the conversation by focusing on another part of Marissa's healing, food. Her take is that food is community, food is history, and food is love. We dove into it when I asked, did you ever get your carrot cake? Well, after my dad did die, my carrot cake did show up. And the woman that was like this sort of cake inspiration for the story brought this unbelievably good cake to the house. And, you know, my mom is a well-known Jewish food writer. So we got, I would say probably thousands of dollars of Russ and Daughters was shipped in. So much fish, so much bagels. But what comforted me most was that cake. And then a, a family friend in DC who she brought us her Iraqi Jewish family's version of mujedra, which is like a lentil dish for mourners. And that's what I wanted to eat and the cake. And it's because the people that made it, I wanted homemade food. Like I remember right when my dad died and, and sometimes it was like, I, I was aware that I had this pass for like a couple days or weeks. And I called the family friend who growing up was, it's like this Christian family from up the street who would always make Velveeta cheese and shells and chicken casserole, like not kosher at all. Although probably is because I bet you there's no dairy in Velveeta. But they, you know, I called, I was like, I want, I want chicken casserole. And she ended up leaving like a different chicken dish on the porch. But there was this sense of, I want the love I can feel from these people like entering into my body. I want, and it, you know, it doesn't mean like eat the whole damn cake or it's not about, you know, I did gain a lot of weight that year, but it's because I wrote a book about death and like ice cream got me through kind of thing. But, you know, you don't always want to move when you're that sad. But more so for me, food is community and food is history. And in this particular case, Jewish food wasn't relevant for me. It was more anybody who made anything from their heart that I got to, t- to eat and put in. Like that cake was just so good, but also so good because finally I got this thing that I'd been longing for from the person. You know, this the woman who made it was such a blessing to our family in that phase. And like, I remember when I had a potluck, I had... I had this person who was sort of like my personal assistant intern, whatever, who really got me through my dad's death in a lot of ways. And they would show, they, you know, just remembering that they showed up with like hummus and carrots and it's, it's not such a big deal, but it's more this like offering of something you can ingest. There's something profound about that. And then sharing that practice of nourishing and in this time of complete emptiness, bringing the outside world into the body is really profound, especially as a single person where like, 
you know, it's pretty not to be, not to be too vulgar, but if you're not having sex and you're not communing with another body, there's something really remarkable about being able to be fed and the act of taking external worlds into you. Cause like part of what's so beautiful about sex is like, you're, you're not alone in your body for a minute. And I think food is another practice that allows you to take community and ingest it and like bring the outside in. And that carrot cake was like, for me, it was the cake, but it was also the love and I was eating love. Marissa ended with an acknowledgement about her book and how her story is her own. I couldn't think of a better way to wrap this episode and season one of the Beside Project podcast. Every journey is unique, and hopefully, when we are given the gift of hearing each other's feelings and experiences, we not only see a whole person, but maybe we see pieces of ourselves as well. While the finished puzzles of our lives might look vastly different from one another, some of the pieces are similarly shaped. One of one of the hardest parts about writing this book also was this moment in editing where I realized that this is my story and not other people's story. You know, my story includes having money and having family and having a relationship with my father that was loving and owning my home and being employed. And there were like all of these factors of, you know, I'm white, I am Jewish, like of privilege, of religion, of a particular position in my narrative. And I just want to like reiterate that no two griefs are alike. Like there's no rule that like what comforts me should comfort you. And I, you know, I offer advice in the book. Like the book is very succinctly my story. And then it pivots to here's what you should maybe consider gleaning from my story. I, I actually went through and tried to take the word should out as much as I could, but I, I want to really honor that everyone grieves differently one person might say, oh, you lost your father. Why, are you, why aren't you upset? And that person may have resolved something a long time ago, or someone else may have lost their cat and can't get up and are like unconsolable because that lot, like, you know, I have a friend who's going through a breakup and that makes her remember her mother dying. And, you know, the layers of loss that we all carry, like no one knows anybody else's load or, or what I'm more and more as I get older, intrigued by when I'm suffering and I'm not allowed to say it in sort of a professional setting how people are just really enduring quite a bit. And so it's so important to really respect and understand that there's just so many layers and, and so much respect we need to give each other as we go through loss. And all of us are going to go through loss. Like it's a fact of life, grieving and then losing and then coming back up again. So yeah, I just want to honor that this is my, my experience and how I dealt with it. And my hope in this book is to give everybody that reads it, the possibility of just a few more tools to make it so that the next time someone dies or the next time there's a loss of any kind, that they have a little more resilience. With thanks to Marissa Nathan Gerson for sharing yourself in this book and on this podcast. Do you or someone you know have a story to share? Or are there topics you'd want to hear me cover? Reach out to me, Sarit, through the website besideproject.org. There you will also find written posts, resources, and explorations of where Judaism meets death and dying. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.